Welcome back to Distinct Nostalgia, and now it's time for a special show marking 50 years since the start of a groundbreaking TV series. Ashley Byrne takes a trip back to Crown Court. So I'm here scrolling through an edition of the Independent Broadcasting Authority Annual uh, Guide to Independent Television and Radio from uh, the early 1970s. Uh, it was just sort of Anorak's favourite, really. If you're into uh, your TV stations, uh, your Granada and Yorkshire and Thames and London Weekend, etc., and you liked all that kind of thing, you'd make sure you got this once a year. It was the, the Christmas treat, really, if you're a bit of, a bit of an Anorak. And um, <laughs> I'm looking through this because I want to know where the earliest sort of mentions are of, of Crown Court. And um, I've scrolled through the 1973 um edition of this IBA annual and there's very little mention of it at all really I think there was sort of um, keeping the powder dry just to see if it succeeded or not it started in 1972 um, and the only reference I can see for Crown Court even on the sort of there's no mention on the Granada page if I go to here we have page 41 there's a whole page about drama here and it's, uh, it talks about Coronation Street and Crossroads being a staple now of uh, the ITV schedules and mentions programmes like Upstairs, Downstairs and all the great quality drama they're doing. And then it says right at the end, the ending of government restrictions on broadcasting hours. Yes, there were restrictions on actual broadcasting hours by then. And the development of a daytime pattern of programmes has created appropriate opportunities for inter alia new drama offerings in this genre such as Yorkshire Television's Emmerdale Farm, Thames Television's Harriet's Back in Town. don't remember that one. That certainly doesn't get repeated, does it? ATV's General Hospital, which I do remember, but that doesn't get repeated. I do remember Richard Thorpe was in that, though, who, of course, played Alan Turner in Emmerdale for many years. And it says, Granada's Crown Court. It's no exaggeration, really, to say Crown Court was both groundbreaking and unique. Here it was, playing out real-life court case scenarios, in effect in real time, or at least as live, in front of a jury of real people who would deliberate just like in a real court case. And, of course, they had to decide a guilty or not guilty verdict as well. There had, of course, been courtroom drama before in film and in TV. In fact, Yorkshire Television, just over the Pennines in Leeds, had been making justice, with none other than the film star Margaret Lockwood as one of the barristers. But Crown Court was different. There was no backstory about the lawyers or the judge, and we didn't see the defendant or victim's drama play out either, or the case itself, the actual events leading up to the actual court case. This was rather exactly what you'd see if you went to witness a Crown Court case yourself. And in that sense, for any kids watching it back in the 70s, like me and others, not to mention the adults who watched it in their millions, it was tremendously exciting, enlightening and educational. Many people took up careers in law after watching Crown Court and it's still hailed as a really authentic portrayal of legal proceedings in England and Wales. Now, careful about your questions, because that was a long time ago. <laughs> the legendary Derek Griffiths was one of those who starred in Crown Court in the early years. How many glasses of beer would that be? I was born in 72, so I don't remember it going out in 73. 
But I do remember as a little boy, whenever we were sent home from school with power cuts or whatever was going on, I'd watch Crown Court and I learned so much from that program. So, yeah, yeah. so much about yeah. you know the law and, and and different things. And it was it was so well done. Tell us what you what's your memory? And it, it's a long time ago, as you say, it's, it's 49 years ago. So <laughs> what what's your memories of Crown Court? Because this was one of Granada's sort of bastions wasn't it one of the ones oh, that yeah. they really it was brilliant time. bill podmore who used to do a lot of coronation street stuff uh said to me do you want to do it it's it's uh, you're gonna to have to have a french accent and uh, there's no comedy and he looked at me again and said Derek, there's no comedy he said you've got to behave i said all right there was a lovely lawyer in it played by terence hardiman and he had to ask me did you offer uh, and i was trying to make out that my my father was my father in fact, he was a con artist. And he said, OK, tell us about his distinguishing marks. And I said to the lawyer, well, uh, he has a small scar on his left knee. And it is uh, about so big. And uh, I know that because uh, I am his son. Uh, so I know where his little scar is. And it is only small. <laughs> And Hardiman, we had to stop. He'd gone. He'd gone. And there was a love. The guy playing the judge was William Mervyn, who was a lovely man. He used to call me Lollipop Man because he knew I was in children's television. I don't know why he called me Lollipop Man. He thought I had a part-time job as a Lollipop Man on a, on a school crossing. And uh, he, it, we all had such a good laugh. It was lovely. But it was very serious when, it, you know, when we yeah, finally yeah. got it. You know. yeah, yeah. And uh, the jury are picked off the street on the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, and they were putting bets that I was I was I must have done it too well because they thought I was real real but he was a con artist and trying to get the inheritance. Not, it was played like a court, wasn't it? You, you oh yeah, yeah, for, absolutely, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you didn't know what the outcome was going to be because you know. So they were ready to film two different endings, wh- whatever the jury decision was. which was almost a bit like live television. It was great. It was edgy. For a period of time, anybody who was anybody in acting in the UK would appear in Crown Court. It was a writer passage. It was, you would invariably get a call at some point, but it was a, a great call to get. There was no sort of, oh God, I've got to do, you know, do that show. It was very, it was a quality show. And, and it was, it was a good um, uh, showcase for young actors. John Isles would go on to play DC Mark Dashwood in The Bill. He remembers his time in the Crown Court. And it was almost like doing a play, you've got to remember, because it was done as live uh, with that uh, the members of the public in the, in the jury. So it had to be shot as live. You couldn't keep them sitting there, you know, a, a whole day's shooting, keep retaking and going back. Actors, fine, because they're getting paid to do it. Um, it's their job. But you couldn't ask a jury to do that. So it had to be shot almost in real time. And you only stopped if something went disastrously wrong. So it was... I was I, I couldn't do it now. I really... I, it terrif- it's made me go a little bit hot just thinking about it. But then, with all the you know, sort of a chutzpah of coming out of college and young actors, it was just... It was fine. But you you had a lot to learn. But if the format for the actors could be challenging, the storylines were a delight. It was so well written. They were clever plots. 
you know, they they twist and turn. And um, I, I played Ian Webster. Ian Webster, and he was a bouncer in a nightclub, and a guy had got killed in the in the club, and that's what the case was about. He was a northerner, um, which was fine, because I was born in Yorkshire. I think I did it in a Yorkshire accent. I'm pretty sure I did. Um, and he was very smart. The, the iconic moment in it was they were doing the dance, the... Um, Oops, upside your head. Oops, upside your head. They said, oops, upside your head. And it was the rowing song. It was the kids today would just freak if they saw what we did in nightclubs. You you all sit behind each other as in a in a boat. You you might remember. No, you won't remember. You're still too young. Um, and then you do the rowing motion and, and you, you move across the dance floor, which... And we had to do that in the court, as I remember, or describe it in the court. It was so funny to be doing that dance because I remembered that dance from from going to nightclubs as a, as a kid. I didn't go to many. I hated them. I hated them. But the idea of doing, doing that dance in a nightclub in those days, you're talking about sitting on a floor soaked in beer and what and fag ends. Because everyone smoked in club, and you think, who the hell came up with that idea of a dance where you sat on that revolting floor? Bearing in mind, I was being cross-examined by uh, Walter Gottel, who's the KGB officer in the early Bond films, and Charlie Lawson, who famously played Jim McDonald in Coronation Street, also remembers coming face to face with a barrister in the shape of Walter Gottel. Walter Gattel, of course, famous for, for war movies and playing a, um, a baddie in um, uh, The Guns of Navarone, playing a Nazi in that, and, and dozens of, of movies. And blow me, I walked into the studio and there was Walter Gattel. I mean, and, you know, it was, these, these people were huge, you know. So I'd, I'd grown up knowing who Walter Gattel was. He's got gravitas. You know, that's why he, why he was so good in the Bond films, because he he never had a huge part, but he made a hell of an impact. He was always, if you remember, he's always in that KGB cellar with the big arch ceiling underneath the church, that sort of uh, barrel-ceilinged place. He always seemed to be in there, and he always made a hell of an impact. And he was like that in, in, in this, very powerful and... and and it was good. Like I say, it was a, it was a good play. Uh, and and he, he was intimidating. So that was all, all a bit bizarre. I had actors like Ian Cuthbertson in there on a regular basis playing a judge. And the, the great and the good of, of um, you know, British theatre and uh, film and TV were on there. And it's, it's also where Richard Wilson sort of cut his teeth, didn't he? He was a barrister in it for many, many, That's many That's correct. Months. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Uh, it would have been my second TV job in in my career would, would have been Crown Court. There was me, Michael Elphick, Joan Sims, Stephen Pinder, Eddie Peel, and it was written by John Godber. Of course, Brian Mills was directing it, who ended up giving me my part of Jim McDonald in Coronation Street. So it was a small world. So seven years later, 1989, Brian cast me in, in Corrie. In those days, Granada was completely rammed full of actors. They were making dramas all the time. So it was very exciting. And they also had a really good club called The Stables, where I spent my sort of formative years 
um, with Michael Elphick and um, they were very wet. They were wet. <laughs> they were wet days and wet nights. Let me tell you, it was uh, it was good fun. And Charlie's not the only Corrie favourite who spent time in Fulchester. Elizabeth Dawn, who played Vera, of course, had a stint in the Crown Court, along with Sean Wilson, who would eventually play Martin Platt. Crown Court was a feeding ground for writers, and I remember watching a few Crown Courts before, you know, before I was asked to play in one. And oh, there was there were a little bit tongue in cheek, and if you went back to them now, you'd realise that. Um, that we were, as a viewers, we were being taken on a little ride and you either jumped on or you weren't aware of it. It was really quite uh, 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 one of those programmes. So the one that I was invited to, it, it, was, it was a racial uh, title and it was yeah. called the four-letter word beginning with P for Pakistanis, yeah. uh, uh, bashers, and we were all skinheads. Three of us were skinheads. But it turns out that the <laughs> that the clever writer uh, had decided that we were taking um, this Pakistani boy to court because we were picking on him. Uh, but but of course he was he was uh, uh, an expert at martial arts, and he, so he kicked us. Uh, so we were taking him to court. So there there comes the, there comes the tongue in cheek. The, the, the famous person was an old uh, Hammer horror movie actor called Foley Walters, uh, and he was the judge. Uh, so that, that was our little connection to, you know, to worldwide fame. Uh, but it was, it, it was a great week. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I remember seeing another one where uh, a gypsy had taken the farmer to court or something, and, oh, there were all kinds of uh, witnesses coming in and witness for the prosecution, witness for the... Defendant, and we just went on and on. And really, in the end, it was all about uh, a, a brass urn, which is probably about, yeah, you big. That's all it was about. And that was the tongue in cheek. You know, it was just, <laughs> it was just silly. For me, that's when Granada was in his pomp. They were making a, a Brideshead revisited, who were getting into films. It was everything, it was just live. But while plenty of big names played regular roles in the Crown Court and many other actors cut their teeth on the show as defendants and witnesses, there were one or two well-known names who found the pressure too much. There were long tranches of dialogue between judges and advocates. Actor Jim Whelan. And a mate of mine at the time who was in Last of the Summer Wine, he played Sid, John Comer. And at the time, in my other <laughs> career as a, a club singer and comic, he used to come in the Eaton Park Hotel in Manchester, where I was a regular compare. And he came in one day and he was looking really crestfallen. And I said, John, what's the matter? He said, I've been doing Crown Court today. He said, and I had four pages of dialogue and I couldn't bloody get it through. Now, John was a super character actor and he was very much loved in Last of the Summer Wine. But like a lot of the cabaret people, which John was originally with his brother, they were the Comer brothers, they were a big double act. He wasn't used to loads and loads of dialogue. And then, of course, there was Joan Sims. This legend, I mean, it was like, I'd grown up with carry-on films. You know, we, we used to go to them <laughs> in the cinema. And this woman is, to me, well, to, to a lot of people, was a, a big film star. Big film star. And she was, she was so lovely and she was terrified. 
And I can remember the, the evening before the, the, the shoot, the studio, sitting with her, we were having dinner and trying to keep her calm because she was genuinely panicking. She said, I can't do it, I can't do it, I won't be able to do it. And I said, but you, you've done all those carry-on films. She said, yeah, but there's always, you can always retake. I said, but with the budgets that you had, there weren't retakes. They were very rare. You know, it would you'd literally have to fall over for the director to go do another shot. You know, if you just bumped into the furniture, because you've seen it in all the carry-on films, you just bump into the furniture or something, they go, ah, that's all right, print, you know, and, and, and get on. But she found this, I think it was the courtroom setting, maybe. It, it was very intimidating. And because it was shot as live, you rehearsed for four days or something and then you shot it live and then the, the jury went out and came back in. So when it came down to it, it was go as live. The only way you would stop was if somebody got in the real brown stuff. Brief was, right, do not stop for anything because otherwise the jury will get messed up. We go and we go and we cover each other's asses and what have you. And Joan found the pressure a little too much and she had a sort of a mini breakdown in the box and they had to stop and um, Brian in his own inimitable fashion just took her aside and gave her a big hug and then we turned the, the cameras on again she was fine if I'd been her age I would have been terrified as well because it's it's what we said earlier about when you're young you don't care you've got no fear you just do any they can throw anything at you as you get older, it's one of the reasons I moved into voice work. It got more and more terrifying going on stage. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you mean? Yeah, yeah, we all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying to oh, yeah, I'm trying yeah. trying try, oh, yeah. try, try to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Me, me, me. Yo, look, look, look. We all artists, man. We go you feel me? We going to have this like Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit right now. I got to lie, we play with this shit right now for for. I got to lie. Don't play with it. Take that shit seriously. Crown Court was clearly a special experience for the actors involved in the series over its 12-year run from 1972 to 1984. But the show was more than a drama. In effect, it was an experiment involving the viewers in a process that most people can be called to be part of in real life at any time without any real warning or training. Jury service. Steve Saubutz was one of the members of the public who volunteered to be on the Fulchester Crown Court jury on several occasions. The industry I was in, which was the travel industry, meant that I had to work on a Saturday. So during the week, I was like one day off. So I started watching Crown Court in the afternoon. And I thought, oh, this is quite a good programme. So I wrote to Granada to say if they wanted anybody on the jury, because the jury is made up of members of the public. And lo and behold, I got a, a letter back. Yeah, please come along. Because at at that stage, I was 19 years of age, and I didn't think they'd, they'd probably want anybody so young, but lo and behold, they did, which I was really grateful for. And I think the reason why I, th I appeared, or I went on, on the programme about six times before 
the series completely finished and they liked a cross-section of ages. So I was 19 when I was got to Granada to record the first programme and I said, oh, I'm surprised, basically, you've taken me on. And they said, that's because we get an awful lot of applicants who are retired. And what they wanted to do was get a cross-section of people. I was I was quite good in that respect. The fact, being 19, come along, it's, it's great for them. And that was in 1975, was the first time that uh, I actually took part. And Steve's been recalling how it all worked. We had to go along to Granada on the on the Tuesday uh, morning for about 11 to 11.30, I think it was, if I remember. And then the, we were met by the producer and researcher. And then we were taken into one of the committee rooms where they very kindly give us uh, tea, coffee, sandwiches uh, before we started recording. That way they just went through what the day was going to uh, be like for us because obviously we'd never taken part in this before. Um, and then we went through into the studio, uh, which which was... An amazing set. It was um, Godard had four studios in those days. Uh, studios two, four, six, and twelve. We were now the six or eight, and they're, they're the two studios that were used basically for sitcoms, University Challenge, that sort of thing, uh, and included Crown Court. So we went onto the set, uh, which was brilliant, and all the actors, of course, were there then. And the judge on that first time I went was uh, William Mervyn who had appeared in, in many, many programmes before that. And I thought, wow, this is a, a top actor, this guy. He played the, the part of the Honourable Mr Justice Campbell, if I remember rightly. And so what happened then, we recorded um, all three episodes on that Tuesday afternoon on the on the set, which was quite an authentic set. And I heard it was built something in relation to Mould Crown Court in North Wales. So I think they sort of adapted it from there. But it was a very authentic set. The seats were quite hard, even though we had quite thin cushions to sit on. And bear in mind, we, we were in there from about 12 noon until round about five o'clock when they recorded all three episodes. And the only time then we could leave the, the, the set was when we had to go and decide the, the actual verdict. And it was genuine. We all came out of the studio, went to the committee room again, bought tea, coffee, sandwiches, which was very nice of them. And then we had to discuss the case there and then. So what happened was the, the cast and crew had to rehearse two endings, whether it be guilty or not guilty. And once we'd decided what the verdict was going to be in the committee room, that was then telephoned through by the producer, through to the gallery, so that the director knew which shots to actually go for. But what they didn't do, which was good, uh, they didn't send any information down to the actors. So that what they wanted to do there, when we went back into the studio to record the final verdict, they then wanted to get the natural reactions from, from the actors, which was brilliant. It was really, really good. And they took it to heart. If, if they lost a case, believe me, they, they weren't too keen on it. Um, but it was good. It was very authentic. Uh, we were all members of the, of the general public, and except for one person. And that one person on one particular occasion was actor Jim Whelan. My third proper job as an actor was in Crown Court. I was jury foreman. I had two words to say. But you were there for three days and you had to watch the whole show being recorded. And then you and the jury went to a private room and you decided the case. Now, the jury was made up of 11 members of the public. And because of equity rules and because he had to speak, one had to be an actor. I was that actor. 
But it was very important to me because I, I got an episode fee of £60. Now, honestly, I looked it up this morning because I knew you were going to talk about it. £60 was worth 750 quid by today's standards. I was skint. I was pepper flipping mint. And that was worth a lot to me at the time because... All I did was go out boozing and, and so on. I was a single man. I was living at home. I was traveling up and down the country. The world was my lobster. And off I went. I never had any money. And I got this. And I thought, wow, I'm going to get 60 quid soon. When the check came through, the check came through. It was 180 pounds. I thought, why is this? So I phoned my agent and said, has there been a mistake? She said, no, equity have been on and they have demanded that the jury foreman be paid for three episodes because he's in three episodes. He only speaks in one and they wanted to pay six quid for the two he wasn't speaking in as an extra. Equity said, no, he's an actor, therefore they did. So I got paid the equivalent of two grand. So I can never forget it, you know. Both Steve and Jim remember vividly the deliberations in the jury room. There was one person who kind of took over. I wasn't very assertive in those. I didn't know what these were members of the public. And there was one person who said, I've been on a jury. And he did most of the talking. But this one person kind of took over. Yes, a few prejudices come out in what people say. We put our votes into the box and the director took it away and he called me aside after that and he didn't even speak it he didn't he wrote it down he said that is the verdict he said now only you and i the director know that then he went off off into the um uh, the director's box up on the galleries that used to be in those days. And we rehearsed two different endings. One where she's happy and, oh, thank goodness. And, and the rest of them in the gallery say, oh, it's a fix. And we rehearsed the other one as well. During each rehearsal, when they came to me for my verdict, I just had to say, don't know, don't know. I couldn't <laughs> indicate in any way. So no, that was my minute of power. Nobody knew except me, what the verdict was. And everyone, during the, the, the technicians kept coming and saying, come on, is it good? Is it good? You know, I said, shut up, leave me alone, you know, because they were mischievous and they were trying to get it. But they didn't want anyone to know because they wanted proper reactions from the actors. And Steve Sauerbutz has some fantastic memories of his time on the Crown Court jury, including coming face to face with one of his TV heroes candidate for the alliance i think it was um in 1982 or thereabouts was one of the cases and the reason why i remember that is because way back in the early 70s you're probably too young ashley um there was a program called cat weasel and it starred um a great actor called jeffrey Bailden. and i used to love cat weasel it was one of my favorite programs it was great uh, and in 1982, we went in to do this programme that was called Candidate for the Alliance. And we're all sat there and they'd started recording. And then suddenly in, in the box was this actor called Jeffrey Bilden. And I was absolutely knocked out. Absolutely. Because I just thought, that's Cat Weasel. Just a few feet in front of me, that's Cat Weasel. And, and what it made it more interesting for me was, first of all, he fluffed his lines about three or four times. And what, one of the lines, and I always remember this, he had to pick up um, a brick, a house brick. And part of the line was, yes, that's it. It's an Accrington. Right. And the reason why I remember that, first of all, I live in, I'm from Accrington itself. 
And secondly, my dad, who's no longer with us, sadly, uh, was a brick burner and he used to make these bricks. So that's why it, it sort of, I absorbed that completely. First of all, it was Jeffrey Bailden and then it was my hometown. And secondly, my dad was sort of part of creating the brick, which um, Accrington is very famous for. Great memories. <laughs> and of course, I do remember Cat Weasel and I remember Jeffrey Bailden because, of course, he was also in Wurzel Gummidge, if you remember. Oh, he, he was the crow man. Yes. If having a real jury added to Crown Court's authenticity and the drama of the moment, then the music, which we'll come to later, and the set and the way in which they manoeuvred and manipulated the cameras were the icing on the cake. The set was designed beautifully. You walked on there and you just felt, holy God, this is a real courtroom, you know. There were detachable backdrops so that they could ta take a wall out and then put a camera there and then put another wall in so that you got different views of the court. Each episode of Crown Court would start with the voice of Granada TV anchorman Peter Wheeler outlining the background to the case. Peter Wheeler, of course, would also be heard as the voice of What the Papers Say, the long-running series on Granada and later on Channel 4. Yeah, he had, a, he had a great voice. So I remember uh, walking towards the set and he was there on his table with a little lamp, etc. And his, his, um, his, his earphones sort of thing. When we sat down and they started recording, you could actually hear the music being played. And I love the music anyway. I think the theme music is really, really good. So, yeah, you could hear the music sort of just slightly in the background before they started doing the recording. And uh, one thing about the set, like it was a like a four-walled set. So if, if you looked at it from a jury's point of view, to our right-hand side, there was the, the judge, and to the left, there was the legal eagles. And straight across is where they, they tended to put the cameras. Uh, they also had a, a little little corridor set as well, what I remember, with a, a telephone on the wall. So sometimes they did little shots inside the corridor. But the set was, was really clever because... From time to time, rather than have the same shots from the cameras, uh, the cameras, like I say, were across from, from the jury members anyway, sometimes what they would do is close that part of the set and then behind us, you'd hear the wall coming down and then a camera lens would appear. So if I was, like, for example, sat on, on the back row, a, a camera lens would appear between myself and the jury member next to me to get different shots which I thought was, was really good. You had multiple cameras in position behind those walls. And as it was shot, they, they would cut, the director would cut as live television from camera one to camera two to camera three. But what would happen is sometimes the cameras would be facing each other across the court. So when one camera was shooting, that was fine. You couldn't see the other one because it was behind the panelling. And when it had to swap round, of course, this camera that had just been on had to go back, the panelling would close in front of it, and then the other camera could come on. I mean, it was, it was poetic. <laughs> it was so clever. They used to walk the cameras into you. And rather than zoom in with the, they would walk the camera around the, the floor. And it was just something about that. And it worked really, really well. 
And then towards the end of each programme, of course, when, when all the captions came up, of course, in those days, no electronic cameras. They had the, um, they had the, like the, the caption rollers, if you remember, you know, when it went up, up the screen. So again, what they used to do was getting towards the end of the, the, the first programme, second programme, third programme, was the cameras in front of us, they'd still be recording uh, the set, but then a couple would be turned round, one to get the, the roller caption, and then, of course, they went on to still captions, maybe for the producer's name, and then one for the director's name, and then finally for the what they call the end cap, where it says Granada Colour Production right at the end. So all that was done right in front of us. And that's what made it really interesting to see how a, a, a TV programme certainly um, a drama programme, is put together. One of the most memorable things, of course, about Crown Court was its haunting theme tune. So being a big fan, how much does Steve remember of that theme tune? Oh, Ashley, what are you doing to me? But it does go on quite a bit, doesn't it? And what about the closing theme? Something like that. Here, the opening titles, a classical piece that would certainly wake you up on a wet and windy weekday afternoon. As a kid, I found it slightly scary, but it grabbed my attention, and I, like millions, would then be hooked for three episodes of intrigue in the Crown Court. But unlike most programmes, the series didn't have just one theme. After 30 minutes of drama, the producers opted for something more reflective. Enter Simon Park, the Simon Park Orchestra and the popular Crown Court closing theme, Distant Hills. Crown Court music was not actually written specially for Crown Court. It was just a library track. But Granada were looking for a piece of end title music for Crown Court. The piece is actually called Distant Hills. They heard it and said, yeah, that's it. That's what we want. So did you know at the time what Crown Court was and, and what this music would actually be used for? It's another sort of cops and robbers or law justice type programme. I still don't really understand exactly why they were so taken with it and felt it was so apt as a closing piece for the series. But it worked well, uh, it proved popular. People asked where they could buy it and one thing and another. The way library music was organised in those days is that they would decide that they needed, it was usually an album in the old days of vinyl albums, of music of a certain type, industrial music or comedy music or sports music or romantic music. In this case, the brief was for classical type music, basically sort of 18th century type music with a fairly limited orchestra of strings and a handful of woodwind. And I was asked to do it, so I had to make, come up with 12 tracks that fitted that brief, all of which could be played by the same orchestra on the same day. 
So I'm sitting at the piano, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm looking for ideas and I'm just playing, you, as you do. You know the area you've got to be in stylistically, so you just tinker about and improvise until an idea comes to your head. I don't remember what, how that tune came to me. I remember thinking, it's not quite filling the brief. In other words, it's not really typical, like Mozart, Haydn type music, but it's, it has a simplicity and a dignity that shouldn't jar too much with the rest of the stuff on the album. And so I decided to put it forward and we recorded it and everybody seemed to like it. And they certainly liked it a lot more when Granada decided to use it on Crown Court. <laughs> When I listen back to the recording, my first thought is, why the hell did I change key to D-flat major after the first two choruses? <laughs> because the string players didn't like that. It has a sort of atmosphere. It's one of those pieces which does get in under your skin. It's got a certain gravitas. I think it's quite a good little tune. And it's in complete contrast to the Yamachek piece. And it has a very Scottish flavour which was not deliberate on my part. I was just sitting doodling at the piano and this thing tune came to me and I sort of started it. And the original recording doesn't, doesn't sound particularly Scottish, but of course it's subsequently been recorded by at least two and I think three Scottish uh, military pipe bands who you know, give it the full pomp and circumstance treatment, you know, with skirling pipes, you know, as far as the eye can see. That does bring it up, lift it hugely. But no, the original did as well. Crown Court's birth in Manchester coincided with the arrival of another hit ITV series, this time from Thames Television in London, called Vandervolk. The theme tune to that, Eye Level, was also arranged by Simon Park and performed by his orchestra. The Eye Level single was issued with Distant Hills, the Crown Court theme, on the B-side. Both soon became hits in their own right, with Eye Level staying at number one in the charts for four weeks in 1973. That, again, was a piece which was recorded just as a library piece. It was recorded in Holland. I was my first, one of my first uh, sessions with a fairly biggish orchestra. It was a, well, it was a 35 piece orchestra, I think. And it was recorded in Hilson. And I was uh, invited to go out there and do some stuff and uh, conduct it. I was sharing it, sessions with um, a uh, Dutch composer called Jan Stuckart, who worked with an English pseudonym of Jack Tromby. And he had written some stuff for the sessions and I had. He had came up with Eye Level. Often you know, people say to me, yeah, how did you write Eye Level? And I say, well, I didn't, but then neither did the composer which always lives, gives them a rather <laughs> odd reaction. The fact is, it's an old tune that goes back years. It's a, a folk tune or a nursery rhyme, and nobody really knows. But it goes back into the mists of time in Dutch musical history. 
So, and he had found it and he turned it into this sort of pompous sort of orchestral piece. And I reworked it a bit and I conducted it and everything else. So then when it went out on the Van der Valk, it was chosen again as a piece by Thames TV. And it was the same sort of scenarios, Distant Hills and the other one. But it, as soon as it went out, all the switchboards lit up and everybody wanted where they could, where could they buy this record, which is how we got in touch with EMI Records and said, you know, we've had this response and EMI looked into it and said, oh yeah, yeah, we want to release it. So they decided, yeah, okay, we'll put it out as a single quickly. And what are you going to put on the B side? And somebody suggested, what about Distant Hills, the theme music from Crown Court? And they said, yeah, that'll do, fine. So that went out on the B side. That was a real case of them rushing the single out whilst the series was still on and before people lost interest. To the extent actually of stopping the presses that were pressing George Harrison's latest release and turning it over to a, my, my single instead. What George thought about that, I never managed to ask him. But it was, yeah, it, it was unprecedented. It, it just went crazy. been a huge reaction to it on television when it, the show was on but when it went into the chart it went into the first week at about number 42 and I thought god I've got a top 50 hit you know and then it, the next week it was at, at number 20 or something biggest leap of the week <laughs> the next week it was at number five and the following week it was number one and it stayed there for I think it was four weeks at number one yeah so uh, freak there you go Crown Court and Distant Hills, as with Eye Level and Van der Volk, there was a symbiosis between the two. The music helped the series and the series obviously helped the music. So they worked well in concert together. Van der Volk, Eye Level, the A side to the B side of Distant Hills and the Crown Court theme, which was released in 1973. So, Crown Court, 50-odd years on, it's about to return to our screens again. It's full run on Talking Pictures TV from the 9th of January this year, half past two in the afternoon, three days a week, Mondays, Thursdays and Fridays. I'm sure that will be an appointment to watch for many people who are fans of the Crown Court. But what about our contributors to this show? What are their lasting thoughts about Crown Court? It was just a bizarre experience, but one of the the most enjoyable experiences I've ever had. And it was unique on television. There was nothing like it. I got two grand for two words, didn't I? It was hugely successful. Great creation by a, a great TV company in those days. You know, Granada were leading the world in dramas and what have you, innovation. I, I often wonder why they scuppered it, you know what I mean? Maybe they were running out of actors. <laughs> Our trip back to Crown Court was written and presented by Ashley Byrne with contributions from Derek Griffiths, John Isles, Jim Whelan, Sean Wilson, Charlie Lawson and Steve Sauerbutz with very special thanks to Simon Park for the music from Crown Court and Van der Volk. This has been a Made in Manchester production for Distinct Nostalgia.
And don't forget, all our Christmas treats that we've been putting together for you are still available on the Distinct Nostalgia podcast. If you look at the podcast, just scroll down and you'll see all of those episodes. The interview with Ruth Maddock, the interview, the very last interview with Hazel Adair, the Crossroads creator, the latest in our quiz show, the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month, um, in which the specialist subject this time is Father Ted, and of course, uh, our new comedy drama starring Gene Rogers, Wrong Side Out, written by Janice Fryatt and starring Emmerdale legend Gene Rogers, who of course played Dolly for many years. Scroll back and you can listen to all of those at your leisure over the next few weeks. Distinct Nostalgia, more than a podcast. Mm-hmm.